Hi there. Welcome to our bonus episode podcast, where we will hear from Rachel Duffett, the author and researcher of the Combat Stress 100 book, 100 Years of Veterans' Mental Health, a history of combat stress. Um, I'm Dr. Rachel Duffett. I'm first world war historian. That's where uh, most of my research has been. Um, I'm based at uh, Essex, in Essex at Essex University and I also work for the Open University and I've been fortunate enough to be part of the six-year funding program that the Arts and Humanities Research Council ran to set up first world war commemoration centres all over the country to help community groups um, think about different ways in which they might commemorate their uh, local um, uh, involvement in the First World War. Now, as part of that, a colleague, Professor Mike Roper, and, and I got to know David Savile at Age Exchange. Now, Age Exchange, as you know, are leading um, reminiscence arts practitioners uh, in the country. And David was doing a fantastic project about children of the Great War and interviewing the now very elderly children of First World War veterans and looking at the ways in which the First World War played out in the domestic setting. You know, we have a lot of public war memorials. We have a lot of interest in national responses, but people weren't really looking about what it meant to grow up in a home with a veteran who had you know experienced any number of, of pretty horrific things so as it turned out David was doing that with his reminiscence work in London and interviewing people and Mike and I were interested in that very subject and writing about it and researching it um, in a more kind of university-based world Upper Essex so we, we then ended up um, uh, collaborating on a number of projects particularly one meeting in no man's land where we took the children of German uh, veterans from the First World War and the children of British veterans and had a wonderful meeting and a discussion about the war in the home. And really it was through that long interest in uh, the legacy of war, really, that David uh, asked me to come with him to talk to combat stress about how they might mark their 100th anniversary as being sort of primary mental, so, uh, military mental health charity uh, in Britain. So it was really through working with David, with his theatre background and his reminiscence arts background and combining that with the kind of historical research background that I have, that's how we ended up knocking on Sue Three's door and saying, you know, what are you going to do? Or It was David, really, who was the instigator of all this. But I went with him as a kind of historical type person uh, to think about how those hundred years might be marked. Um, while researching the book, was there any surprises or things that, that, that stood out to you when, oh, wow, I, I, that, I, that took you by surprise while researching this? I think a lot of it took me by surprise. <laughs> I'm, as I said, I'm a First World War historian. So if you'd asked me about, as it was called then, shell shock or neurasthenia, you know, I, I knew quite a lot about that, certainly in academic terms, because I've read and researched it, it widely. Everything from the 1922 committee on shell shock that you know, the government held to, you know, this first, I mean, it's not the first time that military uh, people have shown symptoms that the doctors didn't quite know what they were about. And if you go back to the Crimean War, there are instances of it. The American Civil War, they had what they called soldier's heart, where soldiers did things that were odd and, and, and were obviously under stress and suffering. And they didn't quite know, they couldn't find a medical reason for it. Um, also in the Boer War. So there is some kind of history before the First World War, of, of, of psychiatric um, influences on soldiers' performance, but no one quite knew how to frame them. But of course, the First World War is the first time that 
military medicine and the army has to confront the fact that large numbers of men, because it was not only men, because there were first of all nurses near the front who combat stress also supported um, in the interwar years. And that was something that surprised me. I had expected it to be for that period, all male, but it was the first time in the First World War that the, the, the uh, um, you know authorities really had to address it. So I wasn't, apart from the the, the gender thing, apart from the facts, you know, there's p- wonderful pictures in your archive, um, or at least one anyway, of what was a First World War nurse um, working at uh, you know one of the um, facilities that the charity set up but so that that was kind of um, interesting to me but really it was following the story through and then I found lots of not always surprises but but confirmations really and um you know rather dispiriting confirmations really that things hadn't changed that much and the lessons that might have been learnt um, after the First World War hadn't always played out, certainly in terms of people's role in society, um, economically, you know, the, the wonderful archive that Combat Stress has of the letters from families uh, uh, dealing with all those requests, you know. Um, I found s- snippets from the newspaper um, of, of men who were clearly um, traumatised by war committing crimes, for example, and the charity stepping in to look after them and provide support for them. And, you know, there are sort of continuities through the hundred years. Um, I suppose that was what struck me more, to be honest, than the surprises. One thing that is surprising, actually, and, and a bit shocking, is the advertising. Um, you know, that kind of speaks, it's of its time, isn't it? And in the same way now that people would be in horror to know that we had charities called spastic society, you know, these are not words that are used. Um, and so, you know, the kind of the, the sensitivities surrounding the way in which the advertising and the way that the, you know, the issues were approached, that that was that was particularly interesting as well. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, I, I'm not saying it's embarrassing because it, you shouldn't be embarrassed by it because it is what it is. But they, it, it speaks to a very different time. So that was quite interesting as well. And I, th- I think you hit on a very valid point there. I, I, I think when we start to talk about mental health, there is still a stigma now in the present, um, let alone when we go and look back and we talk about the last hundred years. Um, I can't imagine how people perceived mental health issues then. Um in in those traditional society elements um, b- before before it was even sort of well understood. I think that's I mean that's a really important point. Concepts which society in general is familiar with. Now, a hundred years ago, you know, people did not talk. This is you know, Freud is only just starting to get some you know the talking cure. It's only just starting to get some traction in Britain a hundred years ago. Um, one famous critic of Freud said, "Oh no, it's all right for you know Germans and Austrians, but not for open air you know sports loving nation like the British." You know, this kind of idea that you know British people didn't want to sit there looking at examining their navels or their dreams or what have you. So, a hundred years ago, the attitude to uh, trauma, uh, the effects of trauma was very different. I mean, there was, you know, famous Dr. Yelland who, um, you know, his solution to men who were made mute or, or unable to to walk because of their 
traumatic experience in the trenches, his solution was to stick electrodes on them, you know, and, and push those. So, so you know, the kind of very brutal approach, you know, shell shock wasn't treated in the same way that um, PTSD would be treated now. You know, they were quite right. physical and, and horrible treatments provided. Well, at least we don't shoot our veterans now. <laughs> that, that too, uh, uh, as well. I know we say that tongue-in-cheek, but unfortunately that was yeah. a, true, a, a true reality for, for people in the First World War who actually, when you think about, were actually just suffering from the mental stresses yeah. of being in combat. Yes. The issue for an army, isn't it? I mean, you know this probably much better than I do in terms of you know being an ex-military you know a military person but looking at the army in the first world war you know their issue always is how do they you know if they said we know it's horrible and difficult and um but you know you can go and do something else then their worries then are what does that mean for the rest of the men but the interesting thing of course is is that other armies did not shoot um, men who left the front or were traumatised by their experience. You know, this is a British thing. They wanted the Australian and New Zealand, they wanted the Anzacs to start shooting deserters or, you know, because not everyone deserted through fear. You know, some of them deserted because they got, you know, other better fish to fry. But other armies, and that, I don't think the German, maybe the German army did. The French shot mutineers, but, you know, um, armies in general did not shoot men for, you know, going absent without leave, apart from the British, which is a bit, it is worrying, actually, isn't it? And that was out of step with even other national authorities at that time. Uh, and, and while it's very, very true that uh, the, the British military have come a long way in their way of dealing with um, mental health issues and put a lot of things in place, I still think there is an underlying mentality um, that has probably followed on from the First World War and, and how they view this and the effect it has on their military personnel. Um, and... I think it negates having open, honest discussion. Um, having been in the military myself and having worked with uh, serving personnel over the last three years, I, I, I have found that there is some pushback from senior commanders when trying to discuss and promote good mental health and discuss the, the, the pitfalls of um, bad mental health as well. Um, and from my observations and, and the conversations that I've witnessed I've just finished reading, actually. Um, I don't know if you've read it. I watch, um, uh, you know, the SAS programmes on Channel 4. I know all soldiers probably hate them and think they're a load of old toots, you know, but um, who dares wins. But I've just read Jason Fox's autobiography, which is quite interesting because mainly it's about his experience of PTSD uh, in the modern, modern-ish army. And as you say, I hadn't fully appreciated the level of shame that he felt um, and, you know, how do you deal with something when you're worried, you know, don't make any notes on this, you know, I'll come and talk to you, you know, this kind of um, support people in, uh, you know, I'll come and talk to you as long as you don't make notes. I don't want my commanding officer or my unit. Mm. He calls it the brotherhood of the people he worked, you know, he, he served with. And I, I did find that very interesting because it kind of reminded me that, as you just said, that I, from outside, I might think we've come a very long way, but from inside, it doesn't necessarily look like that. Um, yeah. I, and I can totally relate to what he's saying, because um, um, even now, um, even though that there's probably 20 odd years apart from myself when it happened and what we've just discussed, there is that shame element. There is the fact that you weren't mentally fit 
when, like a lot of veterans, and this is a common thread for the veteran community, I thought I was the only one. I thought it was only me. And this happens because of the shame and because we don't talk about it. And it's not so later on till either things have gone really wrong for us. And then we come to an organisation like Combat Stress or something similar and find other veterans who are going through exactly the same thing. And it's like, I'm not on my own. I'm almost coming back full circle into that um, cohort, that 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 camaraderie that I had when I was in the military. Um, and that's very, very therapeutic. It's also um, helps massively with the anxiety uh, because you, you let your guards down and you're able to sort of talk openly. And actually the clinical care that you're given actually works better because you've let all these guards down from when you initially uh, approached them or tried to get help. And you see that in the, you know, looking at the history of combat stress, that right at the very beginning, they had, um, you know, they had psychiatric, they had psychiatrists involved and there weren't perhaps, you know, there weren't as many of them, that kind of trained medical staff at that point, but they did employ psychiatrists but they also realized the importance of setting up therapeutic communities as they were then you know that men could live um and and be you know doing useful things and a lot of it being outside not all of it because we have the Bermiga factor in everything but initially it was about farm farm work and you know outside stuff orchards you know that looking after animals but all that kind of things that we'd see as quite therapeutic activities but it was also the community of the men that was important to them and as you say the kind of the more medically based psychiatric therapy doesn't really it's not going to work if, if men don't have a, a real world in which they it, can it needs to come as a package not one thing um that you can um point out is going to um help them recover it has to be um sort of a package of like the camaraderie the cohort the psychological therapies and the occupational therapies yes um, if you look to where we are now, a lot of that is still very true today, uh, yeah. especially when it comes to the occupational therapy and how therapeutic it is in that recovery pathway uh, for helping veterans, um, especially when it comes to working with animals, whether we have PTSD dogs or uh, equine therapy. So yeah. um, they did a lot of groundbreaking work in those days, um, which I, I feel is okay methods and technology changes but as i said the basics seem to be very very similar to what we were doing 100 years ago yeah and also do you think um about engagement with families as well because that's something that comes through in the archive of combat stress is that you know they were always keen to support not just uh, the men and women, the veterans, but also the family, the wider unit, and trying to offer some kind of support, often financial, actually, to, um, you know, especially in times when state benefits, and not that they're great now, but, you know, but in the 1920s, they were very poor indeed. And, uh, you know, pensions of any kind were hard to get from the army. So, you know, they, the combat stress charity played quite a key role, I think, in trying to support um, you know, often women who were dealing with quite difficult situations uh, under great financial hardship, you know, there were small gifts made and, you know, um, medical care offered and, you know, all those kinds of things. It's a kind of, you know, it was quite a holistic approach. When you look at how many charities worked at that time, I think combat stress probably stands out, you know, from that family-based um, approach. Well, I, I think it's vitally important. Um, I think it's something that's always been sort of um 
thought about but never implemented to uh, to the recent years um and from my observations of being involved with uh, the veteran community uh, and military charities it's something i would say that's been spoken about and understood but only implemented probably um over the last five years um where they're really starting to engage with the families and realizing that if we don't address these issues yeah. uh, that actually you're not you're, you're not effectively treating the, the individual um, veteran coming through because as we know now that um, those families living with a partner suffering with mental health issues from their military service sometimes um, take on those um, mental health issues themselves through, yeah. through exposure to the behaviors um, and the 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 negative side of having mental health issues uh, and i think a lot is being done i think there's a still a long way to go um and but as i said i think it is certainly being recognized now and that families are, uh, are really is as important as the individual uh, who's been affected yes because i mean I, I, not so much now but at one point um combat stress offered quite a lot of what they they wouldn't call it quite call it respite care mm. but it was a way of you know giving people carers at home because often the people that combat stress dealt with had physical issues too mm. you know so it was an onerous task to look after them so yeah there were opportunities to support families um certainly in the 70s and 80s i think in that way as well by offering kind of you know holidays almost isn't it you know well, I was one of the privileged ones I, I know sort of about eight years ago that um, my partner then and I were invited to go for a respite down in Western Supermare uh, with combat stress and use the facilities in the Royal British Legion Lovely. Um, and, and it was fantastic it was uh, uh, because we hadn't had that opportunity while I was in treatment um, because working um, and things like that I had to use annual leave to go to treatment so then that had a knock-on effect and I, it's not just me there are a lot of veterans in a similar boat who who still work still trying to support their families and manage a mental health issue um and with the current setup and and the way things are in this country um, a lot of veterans um, have to use their annual leave and holiday entitlement to come to treatment um which then has a knock-on effect um, with the family um, going away um, and doing the normal things that families do when they go on holiday. I had not appreciated that. I had not appreciated that people were receiving treatment, uh, you know, um, in, in annual leave. I mean, what, what, what are the pressures of that? That's just huge, ridiculous, huge. isn't it? You're, like you say, supporting your family, working full time, and you're not getting a break because your annual leave is being used up in, in very... You know, difficult and demanding treatment uh, processes, isn't it? I hadn't, I hadn't fully appreciated that, Jane. That doesn't come through in the archive. I have to say, <laughs> uh, it's something we're familiar with, uh, and, and it has been highlighted. And we understand um, at Combat Stress, uh, our clinical staff and our peer support coordinators understand that for for a lot of veterans trying to get to the treatment centre for long periods of time, especially if they are. Um, working and trying to maintain stability in their life difficult not just um, um, from the um, holiday point of view um, and being able to um, go away with the family but from a financial perspective as well it's one of the issues in society that we have in this country um, don't get me wrong it, it's not a, 
a lot of employers do go out their way to help the, the people, their employees. Um, but there are some out there who, who believe it's a government problem and not their issue to sort out, which puts that individual in a very difficult position sometimes. I think, you know, thinking about the 100 years of the charity, you know, the funding of this work is a kind of is, is something else that struck me when I'm looking at it. You know, it's very difficult, isn't it? Where is the money coming from to provide this support that is needed um, by our veterans? And, you know, when the charity set up, there was no government funding 100 years ago. They did it all through donation and huge fundraising campaigns. Um, but I think as 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 we've got near the you know into the modern era, those those issues of funding have become quite significant, haven't they? Probably in the history of any charity. But I see, you know, now I, I see, you know, the difficulties that the charity Combat Stress is under to provide what it need, knows is needed. But, you know, if the government, which has been using charities as a vehicle for delivering in, in many different areas, for delivering what government services, you know, know is required, you, know, you then become dependent on, you know, government funding and the whims, the political whims therein, don't you? So, And like the point you made there about when we first started 100 years ago and how we relied on funding mm-hmm. is still very true today. Um, while money is made accessible through um, contracts through the NHS to deliver certain services, the majority of our funding comes from the general public and their generosity to support the veterans who served their country. Um, and so there are lots of arguments around this, but uh, in essence, a lot of the reality is that actually a lot hasn't changed on how we're funded and how um, we need to raise our finance to support the uh, the people, uh, the veterans of this country. Yeah, although I think in a way there's maybe more competition in the funding market now. But there's more people wanting a slice of the pie uh, yeah. and a seat at the table, which makes it even harder uh, for for us to bring in the funds we need. There's a lot of conversations going on at the moment on um, where we stand, and we're not the only charity who is suffering. That the whole charity landscape is in a similar position. Um, because we've relied so much on the general public to provide support um, in whatever way that comes. Can I just ask, was there a favourite part of the book that you really enjoyed or, or was it a part of the project that you really got your teeth into? <laughs> well, I really, I mean, I enjoyed, I suppose I enjoyed, I enjoyed the um, fundraising aspect of it because I'm interested in not, um, you know, there are other histories of military uh, psychiatric uh, disorders as they were you know called you know PTSD now what I have you know all those trauma there's there's quite a lot of academic work out there already about those kinds of things and a number of those pieces written by you know psychiatrists who've worked extensively with combat stress so you know Edgar Jones and people like that have produced these works so I think one of the things that I wanted to do with the book and, and really to kind of demonstrate uh, was the way in which combat stress engaged with the public so and, and that's mainly through, you know, their fundraising initiatives. So there were some lovely things in there. You know, I, I didn't know my parents were huge Goons fans. 
I'm older than you, James, so you might not oh, even. No, I, I do remember the games. Okay. I'm afraid I grew up on them in, uh, as well. Uh, there you go. So I hadn't realised that Harry Seacombe, for example, was a huge supporter of the charity uh, in the 50s and 60s. And nor had I realised, I, mean, I knew about Spike Milligan's um, history of, uh, you know, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder following his war, war service. But I hadn't realised that apparently Harry Seacombe was actually buried alive as well in the explosion during his military service. And, and it, so it was wonderful to have a, a kind of, um, you know, the charity, the images in the wonderful photo archive uh, uh, at uh, at House, you know, all these celebrities, you know, of, of kind of from Diana Dawes, who don't know if you remember her, but my dad used to be quite keen on her as well. She was very blonde and uh, very tight dresses and rather, you know, very funny as well. But, you know, they're all these people that these names that I recognise from popular culture of the 50s, 60s uh, in particular, um, you know, doing quite a lot of engagement with um, uh, combat stress to, to raise money at, at you know, um, giving, uh, for example, uh, performances at London theatres, you know, the funding from one evening would be given to the charity. Wonderful balls. The Queen Mother was the charity's patron for such a long while. Um, so, you know, she was there too uh, uh, in all her finery, you know, uh, supporting the charity. So, you know, these wonderful pictures really of a, of, of a past world mixing glamour mm. with a, a kind of, you know, a, 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 a kind of human life experience that isn't glamorous at all. But then I suppose that's the nature of charity, really, isn't it? That you have the kind of the charity, you know, the, the things that require funding, and then you have the glamorous evenings at the Grosvenor House ballroom and what have you. Oh, uh, uh, we've been very, very lucky, uh, and um, well. While some of our pre, uh, previous um, supporters have been very glamorous and uh, and said celebrities, we, we still have that. His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales is still uh, a supporter. We have Sir Patrick Stewart, who's a, a fantastic supporter as well, um, and resonates um, with the charity from his own personal experiences. So we've uh, and there are many other celebrities who've got involved in various. Um, moments in the charity's history over the recent years and, it, and it's fantastic we've had some great supporters over the years paul hollywood from the british bake-off he did a yes. lot yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's good to see isn't it and yeah that's part of a long history i think of mm. engagement what would you see like the book to achieve what i would really like it to achieve is to give uh, a wide yeah, find a wider audience for what I think is a hugely important charitable endeavour that started 100 years ago when everybody in Britain was worried about veterans, but they were only worried about their physical issues. So, you know, this charity, Combat Stress, has this wonderful history, and I would like people to understand that 100 years on, you know, we still need to be aware of the issues that combat stress is still dealing with. So it's about showing the history and the change, as we've talked about. But it's also about trying to remind people of the continuities that mm. it isn't all in the past. You know, we are still in a world where these questions and these issues have not been resolved. And we all have to be aware of what we can do and in terms of understanding, as well as, you know, hopefully financial support. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for me too. Thank you, James. If you would like a copy of the Combat Stress 100 book, 100 Years of Veterans Mental Health, A History of Combat Stress, 
please visit our online shop at www.combatstress.org.uk. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed these bonus episodes of the Combat Stress 100 series of podcasts, please check out our six episodes in the series, where you can hear from veterans talking about their personal experiences of trauma and their struggle with mental health issues, and from our clinicians who talk about the causes and treatments we offer at Combat Stress. Combat Stress is a charity that is heavily dependent on public donations. If you can help, text GIVE to 70004 to donate £5. Please note, we may contact you about this campaign and the work our charity does. To give £5, but to opt out from further contact from us, text Give No. Text cost your standard network rate, plus your £5 donation. Combat Stress will receive 100% of your donation. Please obtain the bill payers' permission before you text. The customer care line is 01372 587 153. Charity number 206002. Thanks for listening and see you next time.